Hello and welcome to Socialism, the weekly Marxist podcast from the Socialist Party. The Kurdish people in the Middle East are facing a potentially catastrophic onslaught. The United States has pulled out of the region after using Kurdish ground forces to defeat ISIS. This means termination of the limited national autonomy of some Kurdish areas and bloody conflict with the hostile regime in Turkey. So how did it come to this? And more importantly, what is the way out? This episode of Socialism looks at the life and death struggle of the Kurds. How can the Kurdish people win national liberation? Trump's withdrawal of US troops from northern Syria has given the green light to Erdogan and the Turkish state to attack Kurds in the region. We're here today with Paula Mitchell from the Socialist Party's Executive Committee to discuss the situation facing the Kurds in Syria and how they can win national liberation in the region. So first of all, Paula, hello. Hello. What is this dire situation then which is facing the Kurdish people in Syria? Well, in just the last few days since Trump made his announcement, the Turkish state was obviously prepared and instantly invaded. There's been 200,000 or more people displaced. There's deaths. People are fleeing their homes. It's a terrible situation. There's been protests already taking place around the world, quite rightly. The Socialist Party, where we can, has been on those protests. And also in London, we're part of the campaign Solidarity with the People of Turkey, which campaign held its own protest as well at the Turkish embassy this week. And we obviously, I think it's important to start by saying that we stand absolutely against this brutal onslaught. But in terms of the situation for the Kurds, what's behind all this, the Kurdish people is probably the oldest nation on earth without a state. Mm. Following 100 years ago now, the division of the Middle East at the end of the First World War that divided the area where Kurds lived between Turkey, Iran, Iraq and Syria. So a carving up of the Middle East by Western imperialism, by French and British imperialism. And out of that carving up, the Kurds got no state. Mm. And there has been a battle, there has been national aspirations, cultural language aspirations and so on ever since. And persecution and rights to different extents in each area since. And in the Socialist Party, for decades, we've stood alongside Kurdish and Turkish workers in the UK. We've campaigned alongside them against different attacks for a number of years. And I think we would have to say that following the Iraq war and the growth of ISIS, then the Kurdish organisations in in Syria in particular have fought heroically for a whole period of time. Mm. And under the cover of Russian and US bombing in the Kurdish area of Syria, in northern Syria, which borders with Turkey, then... As part of that process, they were able to extend their territory in the north of Syria and established an autonomous area in northern Syria, which is known as Rojava. And that area has been something of a beacon in reality in recent years to Kurdish people across the world, but to much wider layers than just Kurds. Because it has stood out in the Middle East as an area with more democratic rights, elements of a a democratic basis to it, women's rights and so on, and it has stood out. 
and this is the area which is now under attack. And I think it's also very important to say at the outset that we support the right of Kurdish people to self-determination, whether that's just language and cultural rights or whether that's autonomous areas or even independence. So why is the Turkish government carrying out this bloody onslaught? Well, the existence of that Kurdish autonomous area of Rojava has been something that the Turkish state has wanted to get rid of uh, since its existence. The main organisation, the YPG, is linked to the PKK, the Kurdish fighting organisation in Turkey. And to them, any development of Kurdish rights and autonomy in Syria raises the prospects of struggle of Kurdish people in Turkey. It raises the hopes for Kurds in Turkey. Mm. So the Turkish state, they've been aiming to try and establish a, a buffer zone, if you like, along that border with Syria. They call it a buffer zone. In reality, it's to try to wipe out Kurdish autonomy in that area. So that's long been a name. But in addition to that, currently, Erdogan in Turkey is actually in trouble. Erdogan has been developing an increasingly authoritarian regime, imprisonment of opposition, mayors of the HDP, which is a a more left-wing pro-Kurdish rights party, but also imprisoning journalists, academics, lawyers, anyone who's come into conflict with the regime. And they face a dire economic situation now in Turkey. Unemployment has increased by a million in just one year. There's 25% youth unemployment. And unofficially, inflation is spiralling. They say that there isn't a problem officially, but unofficially I've heard figures like 30% inflation. Wow. And now Erdogan is embarking on the policy of austerity and he's losing popularity. Listeners will probably know that there was an election which he lost in Istanbul and they, or which, you know, his party lost. And so they uh, had to rerun the election and he lost <laughs> it even more the second time around. So obviously at the moment he wants to whip up support and he's whipping up nationalism in order to shore up his situation. And it is true that in the polls, support for him and support for this latest war has increased. But Turkey isn't the only contender in the region, is it? You've also got the intervention of the other regional powers and the global imperialist powers, including the United States Mm. and Russia. So how does the situation for the Kurds fit in with the interests Mm. of these other great powers? Mm. Well... This intervention by Turkey has aggravated the potential for further conflicts in the Middle East. One of the things that they're doing as part of this process is moving refugees out of Turkey and into this so-called buffer zone, mainly Arab Syrian refugees. So there's obviously potential for conflicts there. The Kurdish authorities had what are effectively prison camps in their area of ISIS fighters and their families and there is the risk of release of ISIS fighters but of much more than that, of now inflaming that tremendous anger and appalling conditions which exist across the region which can feed support for brutal right-wing forces like ISIS which of course was a product of imperialist intervention in the Middle East in any case for decades Mm -hmm. But there's other issues as well. I mean, the Kurdish leaders have now reached a deal with Assad and the Syrian state. 
and now the Syrian army is facing Turkish troops. So there is obviously potential escalation there. And it changes the balance of imperialist influence in the region as well. Russia, as well as Iran, backing Assad, taking advantage of the US's withdrawal. Mm. And in fact, obviously, that, that's an important factor because there's been intense opposition around the world from other powers um, to Trump's action. But really, that's based on this, the potential to ignite further regional wars rather than concern for the Kurds themselves. Sure. And also, as far as a section of US imperialism is concerned, this loss of US influence is obviously extremely important. Trump is representing a wing, a section of the ruling class in America, which is trying to maintain a base of support using nationalism and has promoted this America first approach, which means withdrawing from international intervention. He's not been consistent in that, of course, because he did bomb Syria. But now this withdrawal is part of that approach. And that's opposed by another wing of US capitalism, which is much more pro-interventionist. And of course, so there's all of these aspects going on, which can lead to more regional wars and inflame the situation. But of course, the first victims of that are the Kurds themselves. So this is the regional powers and the international powers of capitalism desperately trying to maintain a kind of stable mm. series of regimes in the area for them to continue to make profits. And the Kurds really mm. don't have a part to play in that for them. Mm. So that then raises the question, what is the way forward for the Kurds? Yes. Well, as you've just indicated, I think the biggest lesson out of all this is that they cannot rely on imperialist powers, which actually is the lesson of Kurdish history and struggle for many decades. We've explained it in our material many times that the US, but not only the US, other imperialist powers as well, including British, European powers and Russia, are only ever going to support them insofar as it's in their interests to do so. Mm. And that's what they've been doing, because obviously they relied on them in the fight against ISIS. But as soon as it's expedient to them, we have warned many times before that they would be abandoned, which is exactly what has happened here. And it has happened again and again. It happened just two years ago when Russia effectively gave the green light to Turkish forces to attack the Kurdish town of Afrin. And unfortunately, Kurdish people will pay the price for support from Assad too, because he's not doing this. You know, while temporarily, obviously, it seems that that increases their military might, Mm. he's not doing it in order to protect the Kurds, but to reclaim Syria. Assad, in fact, has heavily persecuted the Kurds in the past, and he has allowed this autonomous area more recently because at the start of the Syrian war, then what the Kurds were doing wasn't his main priority. So there's a big price to be paid here by Kurdish people, and that's why appeals which have been made by many organisations, by some Kurdish organisations themselves and those supporting the Kurdish struggle, including trade unions here, these calls to the so-called international community to do something, they're, they're misplaced. We well know it that imperialist intervention in the Middle East has only ever resulted in bloodshed and oppression and exploitation. I mean, you know, that's underlined by the arms trade. The you know, the Turkish army is using German tanks and British helicopters <laughs> in this onslaught. And they are talking now about stopping new arms sales, but that's not an arms embargo. Mm. 
so they can't be trusted. But of course, that does raise a big question because if you can't trust the imperialist powers, then who can you trust? Well, sure, because they've got all the firepower, haven't they? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, but what we would say is that Kurdish people in that region, who they can look to and should appeal to, is the working and poor masses of the region, including in Turkey and in the rest of Syria and wider. They obviously, yes, they do have to defend themselves and the Turkish forces are meeting with resistance. There is fighting taking place. But there needs to be a political appeal to the masses of the region beyond that Kurdish enclave to struggle together. Because actually, if you think about it, it's a mass movement of the Turkish working class that can defeat Erdogan. Mm -hmm. And that has to be on the basis of a class appeal, how else are Kurdish people going to win support from other ethnic groups, from the working class in Turkey and in other countries? It needs an appeal for a fight against all the oppressors, the regional powers and imperialism. It means appealing for a united fight that recognises the national rights, the cultural rights, religious rights and so on of everybody. And a fight for a decent life for everybody, because there are, as we know, vast resources in that region. It means a fight for them to be owned and controlled democratically, to secure decent living standards, you know, homes, jobs, education, health and so on for everybody. In other words, socialist demands, and they are demands, that's, that's a way of organising. It's demands that go further than what is currently raised by the Kurdish authorities in Rojava, and we would argue that you can't do that while making deals with imperialist or regional powers. In fact, those sorts of deals can make more divisions between different sections of the masses in the region rather than bringing them together. Um, but I'm also very well aware that raising that sort of a programme might seem quite far-fetched to many Kurds, particularly you know, given that they are so much under threat at the moment mm. but there have been mass movements in Turkey in recent years from Gezi Park a number of years ago there's been big strikes there was big strike movements against the terrorist attacks recently and not only in Turkey in Iraq there is massive movement taking place mm -hmm. you know in different parts of the country a rising up of young people especially in Egypt there mm -hmm. are mass protests taking place again against Sisi, against austerity. So there is the potential there to reach out. That shows where the potential power lies. But, of course, part of this also means, in all of those areas, the building of mass working-class alternative, working-class parties and trade unions that can fight for that sort of a programme. And we saw, didn't we, in 2011, was it, the Arab Spring? Mm. All across the Middle East region, massive uprisings with the pronounced working-class mm. character, particularly in the more industrialised nations mm. like Tunisia. So there is that potential out there. Mm. There's ongoing revolutions in Algeria and Sudan as well. There is that potential to use Absolutely. the human resources they have to prevent these invasions from other countries mm. by transforming the regimes there as well. So that raises mm. the final question. What can people in Britain do to help the Kurdish struggle? Mm. Well, obviously, this does require solidarity internationally as well. And, of course, 
as I said at the outset, there have been protests and there will be more. And that's important that those protests are supported, uh, that, you know, they are protests of Kurds who live here, but it's important that they are supported by much wider layers. And we have in our material raised concretely, for example, the idea of workers' boycotts and strikes against the arms trade, for mm. example. But we would also add that a really important aspect where Kurds living in Britain and Turkish workers and so on living in Britain uniting together with British workers can join in the fight to get the Tories out, which could be a real important step in their struggle because the Tory and Blairite governments before them, obviously, as we know, have blood on their hands Mm -hmm. in that region. So the fight to get rid of the Tories and the fight for a Corbyn-led Labour government as opposed to a government of Blairites, that would mean fighting to win a government which is much more susceptible to pressure to end arms sales and to stop propping up in despotic regimes and <laughs> and authoritarian regimes like Erdogan's in Turkey. So we would say that's an important part of the task here as well. And if you're listening outside England and Wales, that is a struggle which can be replicated in every capitalist Absolutely. nation across the planet. Absolutely. Thank you very much. Thank you. If you want to discuss more about fighting oppression, come to Socialism 2019 in central London on the 2nd and 3rd of November. Find out more and book tickets at socialism2019.net. Karl Marx said, theory is a guide to action, and socialism agrees. Here is the latest on just some of the workers' struggles, current affairs and socialist campaigning over the last week. The big story for the whole workers' movement is the historic vote for national strike action in Royal Mail and Parcel Force. This has been a long time coming. As reported in previous episodes of Socialism, workers in Royal Mail and Parcel Force have faced increasing workload, management bullying and shoddy pay, especially since privatisation. Posties have staged multiple wildcat strikes at local depots all across the country over the past few years in response to appalling treatment by managers. Now the Communication Workers' Union, the CWU, has balloted for strikes across the whole country to cut the working week, raise pay and pensions and change management's attitude. The ballot results are as follows. Ballot one, parcel force, worldwide section. This is the yes vote of 94.6.
Ballot papers returned, 
Um, we've got a really well supported strike here today. There's been a lot of support on the picket line today, you know, yeah. from different sectors, uh, you know. Yeah. Um, I think that's very welcome. Yes. Yeah, the um, response after the um, ballot was won and the strike action was announced for today and then it's um, discontinuous action so we'll be on strike again on the 5th and 20th and we've had this incredibly positive reaction um, from teachers, from students, um, from uh, fellow workers and other unions so we've had people come across from Leeds University, from Unison, from the UCU um, to stand with us in solidarity so yeah an incredibly um, positive response. In fact, even the principal of the college um, has, uh, although not publicly supporting us, has made it very clear um, that she agrees with the reasons we're going to strike because this funding crisis, which has hit so much of um, our public services and really affects our society, is really having a terrible effect on young people's education and our working lives. And, and what are the NEU calling for in terms of uh, kind of resolving this. Obviously, um, you know, the leaflet you're giving out today says there's uh, 1.1 billion pounds of funding being cut from uh, uh, 16 to 19 uh, education. Uh, you know, uh, clearly reversing the cuts is uh, uh, necessary, but, but kind yeah. of uh, is a sort of more specific things that. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that's probably prompted the huge turnout from members um, to support this strike action is that last year, for the first time, the Sixth Form Colleges Association and the government began to separate our pay, both for teachers and support staff in the Sixth Form Colleges, from uh, pay for teachers in schools. And obviously that's a very, very worrying trend if the, you know, um, those wage differentials begin to open up. So I think that's one of the things that's really, really important that we we make sure that, that we maintain the same pay as school teachers. Um, in terms of the 400 million that's been offered uh, by the government as part of this sort of pre-election spending promises, you know, shaking their um, magic money tree, it's not real yet and it's nowhere near enough to reverse the cuts that we've suffered. I think, is there anything else you want to add? I'm just that... Um, it's been absolutely brilliant to have uh, the level of support, good people like yourself coming along uh, to support us this morning. Um, and the big challenge for us is to make sure that we get uh, a high level of turnout and support for the strikes on the 5th of November and the 20th of November. And we think this is a really, really positive time to have industrial action. I think it's absolutely brilliant that the postal workers um, have voted overwhelmingly to go and strike and that university lecturers uh, were out on strike a few months ago and hopefully we're seeing um, a real bit of resistance from workers um, that is really going to begin to have an effect in government policy. And Socialist Party member Marion Lloyd has won enough branch nominations in Civil Service Union PCS to stand in the General Secretary election. Yes, it's a real show of support for a combative, democratic, open approach to leading the union. In contrast to the unfortunate drift of the current leadership under General Secretary Mark Sawatka, away from putting the union's rank-and-file membership in charge and away from putting members' interests above the union officialdom's relationship with the Labour Party. Marion won 39 PCS branch nominations, making her the clearest and most credible challenger to Sawatka's 62 nominations. Marion also has a clear programme to increase finance and service support for local PCS branches, to look at fresh strategies to win a national ballot for strikes over pay after two hard-fought near misses and to support a Corbyn-led government to improve members' conditions 
while reserving the right to support or oppose any political candidate on the basis of their support for PCS union policy, rather than giving blanket support including to Blairite cutters. This is a really important battle for a key left union. See Marion Lloyd for PCS General Secretary on Facebook for more information. And another steelworks is under threat. Sadly, yes. This time it's the Orb Steelworks in Newport, South Wales. It's another site run by the ruinous private steel firm Tata, which has announced Orb will close and take 380 jobs with it. Now, trade union struggle at the Patalbert Steelworks stopped Tata's plans there, and workers at Orb will no doubt want their unions to be thinking seriously about actions such as strikes and occupations, but there should also be pressure on the devolved Welsh government in Cardiff. One of the steel unions, Community, has put forward a plan to save the jobs and help save the environment by upgrading the plant to create steel for electric cars. The Welsh Government should nationalise the plant to save the jobs and guarantee the funding to achieve this plan. But there's good news from Hackney. Striking drivers and passenger assistants working for the Special Education Needs Service have forced Hackney Council in East London to give them a pay rise. General Union Unite organised the action to get the workers better compensation for working split shifts. If you fight, you can win. Now, we reported last episode on conflict between anti-choice demonstrators and demonstrators defending the right of women to choose when and whether to have children in Waltham Forest in London. Yes, unfortunately, the anti-abortion rights protesters are back in Walthamstow. They've been personally targeting Stella Creasy, the MP in the area. She's pregnant herself and she's been campaigning to extend abortion rights in Northern Ireland. Now, the Socialist Party completely unequivocally condemns the harassment that she's facing. But unfortunately, Stella Creasy, a Blairite, has not used her position to mobilise the community en masse against this threat to all women. Instead, she frames the issue as a hate crime against herself. Mm. And she's relied on the state to challenge the anti-choice protesters, which meant, scandalously, when the Socialist Party and other people who support a women's right to choose were protesting most recently, Mm. they were threatened with arrest for being there because of the bans that have been put in place. And even more scandalously, a woman in the borough who had a miscarriage was so angered by the anti-abortion posters that had gone up, she tore one of them down and she's been threatened with arrest for just an inevitable cry of rage against what's an attack on all women. And the Socialist Party is fighting for a real trade union mobilisation so we can give confidence to people to defend the right to choose. So rather than Stella Creasy's route of saying, don't go on the demonstrations, which unfortunately is a call that she's made, and allowing the police to actually persecute demonstrators who are defending women's rights, the trade union movement should get thousands of people into that square and show the anti-abortion rights protesters that they are not welcoming. That's what the Socialist Party is fighting for. And the ongoing inquiry into secret political policing of campaign groups has run up against a wall in terms of evidence and disclosure. We're participating in the inquiry against 40 years of political policing, spying on groups like the Socialist Party, all the way to campaigners like the family of victim of racist murder, Stephen Lawrence. So the police are arguing that releasing the false and real identities of the undercover officers who infiltrated and tried to sabotage, in many cases, political campaign groups, democratic campaign groups, over at least four decades, that revealing that information about them is in breach of their human rights, which is a real smack in the face to the women with whom these officers entered under false pretenses into romantic relationships, in some cases even fathering children with them. 
What this all shows is, really, we're on enemy ground with this inquiry. Mm. We're participating in it to expose what happened with spy cops. But it really does show that the state isn't a neutral force, mm. balancing between the classes, as we talked about in an episode a couple of weeks ago. That's right, with the judge siding largely with the police in this inquiry. Exactly. The police are the ones who have wronged the campaign group. Exactly. It's a defender of the interests of the ruling class. Mm. So that is why the campaign against police surveillance, COPS, is organising a trade union conference opposing political policing. You can come along. It's on the 16th of November in the Queen Anne buildings at Greenwich University. And finally, three books are out. First of all, David Cameron's autobiography. Well, it's reviewed by a Socialist Party member, Lawrence Davis, in The Socialist this week. His main recommendation is that if you read The Socialist, listen to the podcast, don't waste your money on the book. Hmm. Not hmm. worth reading. It really just does show Cameron as a completely out-of-touch architect of austerity. And it also shows that ordinary working-class people haven't got anything in common with establishment politicians that campaign to remain in the European Union, like David Cameron, because he wanted to stay in the EU to help him continue pushing austerity. Now, there's one really interesting thing. David Cameron didn't really face mass union mobilisation against his government after the sellout of the 2011 pension strikes by the right-wing union leaders. Mm. And the TUC, the Trade Union Congress, only gets one mention in David Cameron's book, almost completely absent, mm. unlike autobiographies like Thatcher that were riddled with mentions of the unions. And it just shows that we can't allow that situation to happen ever again. The unions have to be at the forefront in opposing austerity governments. And the Socialist Party has a new book coming out as well. Since the 2007 financial crisis, many different movements have developed against oppression, austerity, neoliberalism and capitalism with mixed success. It's a complicated political situation at the moment. This book helps us analyse what's going on and why and shows us a way forward. It's based on a debate that took place in the Socialist Party and our international, the Committee for a Workers International. That debate addressed some of the most important ideas for Marxists and Trotskyists, the role of the working class in society and its organisations, the trade unions, how we raise socialist ideas like nationalisation, democratic working class control that are key to ending capitalism, the basis of poverty and oppression for billions of people around the world. So that new book is called In Defence of Trotskyism. It's out in November and you can pre-order it by going to socialistbooks.co.uk. And finally, last episode we heard a political tribute to a giant of the workers' movement, Tony Mulhern, the president of the District Labour Party during the battle with Margaret Thatcher when Liverpool Council beat the Iron Lady, won tens of millions of pounds. Tony sadly died last week, but his autobiography is out as well. We had the book launch for Tony's autobiography, The Making of a Liverpool Militant, just a few days after his death. It was a fantastic event. It turned into almost a mini memorial for Tony's life. The people who organised it booked out the big room at the Casa Pub in Liverpool. There wasn't any standing room left at the venue. People were overflowing outside, showing the level of support for someone whose whole life was a champion of the working class. And a lifelong supporter of Militant and the Socialist Party, fighting consistently for working class Trotsky's ideas right up till the end. Socialism is produced by the Socialist Party, the England and Wales section of the Committee for a Workers International. This week we heard from Paula Mitchell speaking to James Ivans along with Ian Patterson and me, Theo Sharif. 
We want you to join the discussion. Come to Socialism 2019, a weekend of dialogue and debate on political ideas to change the world on the 2nd and 3rd of November in central London. Find out more and book tickets at socialism2019.net. Help us spread the word by giving us a five-star review and subscribing so you don't miss out. Don't forget to recommend us to your co-workers and friends. We also want you to send us recordings from picket lines and campaigns and reports of your activity. And we want your questions, comments and ideas for future episodes. Email socialismpodcast at socialistparty.org.uk Socialism the podcast has no wealthy backers. We survive thanks to the financial support of ordinary working class and young people and we're proud of the political independence that gives us. If you like what you hear, help us take the fight to big business. You can make a regular donation or a one-off payment at socialistparty.org.uk forward slash donate. If you agree with the policies and actions the Socialist Party is fighting for, we need you. Join our fight for a winning strategy in the labour and trade union movement. Join the Socialist Party now. Send us your details at socialistparty.org.uk forward slash join. If you live outside England and Wales and want to join the fight for socialism in your country, contact the Committee for a Workers' International by visiting socialistworld.net. Till next time, solidarity.